On the Empire Podcast this week, White House Down director Roland Emmerich takes over our pod booth and threatens to do, well, nothing dastardly at all, really, which is nice. Plus, Ron Howard pops in for a pit stop to talk about Rush, while we have all the movie news and nonsense is fit to pod on the only movie podcast that realises you probably skipped this bit already, so it doesn't really matter what I see here at all, does it? Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. As ever, I'm joined by three of my learned and esteemed colleagues. Well, that was the plan, but traffic's a bitch, so instead I'm joined by geek queen Helen O'Hara. Outrageous. Hello. Art house guru Phil Dissimlian. Hola. And film fact fiend Ali Plum. Hello. Welcome all. Uh, I'm trying a new intro this week because someone wrote in to say they know who we are already, so they skipped this bit. But then, how will new listeners know your voices, I was wondering. So, and it, it actually gives me no room to write an art house joke for Phil, which I enjoy doing every week. Darn. And that's very disappointing. So, do let us know. Do you like the long, tortured introductions or the shorter introduction that I'm doing now? You know, where I just introduce the guys and then get on with the show instead of wasting time on a long, laborious introduction that really drags things out for ages. This is our fourth week in the podcast under our new sponsor overlord, Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, or online store for a free trial. And this week, 20% off your first purchase on new accounts. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code, which is, Ali? Empire9. That code again. Empire 9. Plus, later in the show, you'll also be able to win a year's subscription to Squarespace.com in our weekly competition, along with some cracking Blu-rays. But more of that later on. First of all, on with the show. It's question time. You've been sending them in via email, Facebook, and Twitter. It is a question from uh, at Mavery1986, who asks, Best song in a Disney film? Wish upon a star, a classic. But for me, it's Friend Like Me from Aladdin. I'm not even sure that's the best song from Aladdin. Honestly, I don't know Aladdin that well. Oh, it's great. Um, I like, um, is it Prince Ali? I'm not sure the name of the song, but Prince Ali, I think, is the funniest song in terms of lyrics from Aladdin. Um, my my choice would probably be When Somebody Loved Me from Toy Story 2, um, a, a, f- a song that can reduce grown men to tears. Interesting enough, one of the questions I considered for this week's podcast was uh, someone citing that song uh-huh. uh, and that, that moment with Jesse. Jesse, Cowgirl, yes, yeah. saying it's, it's one of the saddest moments in film ever and then yep. what are our saddest moments we may come back to that another okay. time uh, but yeah it is it is incredibly sad in fact there was a there was a story at the time it came out obviously uh, Tim Allen and Tom Hanks voiced Buzz and Woody and they sat down to watch the film and, and they screened that scene for them and the pair of them apparently sort of you know lights went up and they're both you know wiping at their eyes and sort of trying to look manly and talk about baseball um, because it completely <laughs> destroyed them uh, so yeah, that I think that's an absolutely gorgeous song. I'll kind of go for anything but Hakuna Matata, to be honest. I I have a, a well-known weakness for uh, Ashman and Menken songs, but it's, maybe it's the Jungle Book really overall. Wouldn't yeah. it be? Wouldn't it be something from the Jungle Book? Wouldn't it be? Or um, Mary Poppins. Oh, Mary Poppins is good. Jim Jiminy, Jim Jiminy, Jim Jiminy. No, Jim, Super That's my favorite. It's become a podcast and musical. Mine's the <laughs> banking song. Love the banking song. Oh uh, yeah, I, I love the bit. I love uh, Let's uh, Fly a Kite. At the end, David Tomlinson cutting loose in that sort of speaky, singy uh, way that a lot of British thespes did. What's wrong with Jim Jiminy? Everything's wrong with Jim Jiminy. That's a great song. It's become a football oh, chant it is, too. It is actually a very How good song. How many Disney yeah. themes have become football chants? I've got a friend who would be very upset if I didn't mention Colours of the Wind uh, from Pocahontas. I don't like Pocahontas as a whole, but that song is a killer. It's a, it's a, it's a real beauty. Uh, I would also mention Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. That is great. Because in fact... 
Beauty and the Beast has great lyrics generally. They've even got that line about screw your courage to the sticking place, which they took from Macbeth, I believe. Be my guest. Ooh. Yes. When I was a kid, I had I, we got this um, triple LP box set of Disney themes from a jumble sale, and I used to sit and listen to that a lot, and I love them so much. But from childhood, so when I say little April showers, you know, bear in mind that that was probably a sort of seven-year-old me that picked that, but I still love it for that reason. And hi ho from um, from Snow White, obviously. The Troubadour song from Robin Hood. Mm. How does that go? The rooster going with the with the guitar plucking, like dueling banjos. Yeah, well, oh, all right, kind of. Uh, also, I would mention a whole new world. Mm. We haven't talking a lot about Aladdin, but I would only go for the Peter Andre and Jordan version. Yes, <laughs> now you're talking because that really is an ear storming classic. They really got the the lyricism of the of the song there, didn't they? Ah, uh, yeah. I, I like um, Phil. I had Absolute Disney, which was forty Disney songs on a CD which is is now out of print and I've actually just looked up the uh, the, the track list here some amazing things in there the, the Ballad of Davy Crockett the Ballad of Davy Crockett that's a Disney thing I forgot about that that's amazing come on that's amazing yeah Leslie Nielsen singing The Swamp Fox what about Zippity Doodah Zippity Day from the otherwise racist Song of the South <laughs> the otherwise racist Song of the South that's um, a good one yeah in a vain attempt to pull an alley I, I've, I've I've done some deep research on Phil Harris, who's obviously Baloo and sings the jazz singer stroke actor in in The Jungle Book. And his first name is actually Wonga. His actual name is Wonga Philip Harris. Wow. That's pretty cool. And he obviously voiced Little John in in the aforementioned Robin Hood and Thomas O'Malley. Is your name secretly Wonga as well? It is now. Is it Wonga Phil DeSemlin? It is now. Let's spin this one around very, very quickly before we bring it to a head. Least favourite Disney song. Hakuna Matata. Hakuna Matata. Hakuna Matata. Uh, yes, anyone else? It's a small world after all for me. That's really annoying. If you've been to Disney World and you've been on the ride. Oh. I have a friend who went around that ride and uh, by the end he was crouched down in the bottom of the boat, <laughs> shaking back and forth and going, please, no more. Please, no more. So, Paddy, if you're listening, I hope you've recovered. Can we just? It's not really a Disney film, but the Mickey Mouse song at the end of Full Metal Jacket. I think stands 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 mention. <laughs> I don't know how they got the rights to do that, but it's brilliant. It's not quite a Disney film, no. This sounds a little unfair, but there's an extra. Disney has a reputation for re-releasing every single one of its classics with an extra scene. They polish it up, they fit it in with the rest of the film, but it shouldn't be there. Maybe it was left out for a reason and there is a tidy up song from Beauty and the Beast, which isn't terrible, but every time I watch it I go this isn't meant to be here and this is putting me off it's got the wardrobe dive bobbing the pool which is amusing but the song really doesn't um, match the rest of the stuff that's in the film one of my favourite favourite favourites which we definitely have to mention is When I See an Elephant Fly from the otherwise maligned Dumbo who maligns Dumbo? I think a lot of people malign Dumbo because it's quite short and personally it's not my favourite I don't like the animation in it necessarily and I find the Pink Elephant song really disturbing and the visuals quite weird. As a child, that freaked me out. We'll put on Dumbo, you're five. And I sit there going, <laughs> you're five. <laughs> that is John Laster's favourite Disney film, if I'm not very much mistaken. Casey Jr. song. That's a, I love that song from Dumbo. No one even knows what it is. You're just looking at me like I'm a weirdo. Why would you malign Dumbo? Hmm. Well, I mean, why you, well he had a sort of a psycho, I, I, psychotropic I, I, experience with it as a five-year-old. <laughs> why would I malign Dumbo? I think I just explained why I'd malign Dumbo. I know, Dumbo. I know. Scared but, you, it's too much. Yeah. It is a bit sort of lysergic. It, it's parts, also short, it? which I remember thinking, oh, is that it? Huh. 
Yeah, it is really surprisingly short. You, mm. you you do kind of, it does sort of just stop and you're like, wait, what? You know why Dumbo was made? They needed a quick cash-in off the back of a, a failure of Fantasia. They put so much money and so much time into Fantasia and they were like, right, let's get a movie that people were like, okay, cute elephant, big eyes, talking mouse, good, Acid. go. Film Fact Alley. You need to jingle. We need you a do film need a fact jingle. jingle. Film Fact Alley. Hakuna Matata. Stop. Okay, uh, what? It's a good song. Probably. Uh, all right. So the next question is from at JH Film. What's your favorite TV ad that has been directed by a critically acclaimed filmmaker before or after their break? I actually wrote a feature on this for the website called 15 Amazing Adverts by 15 Amazing Directors. The feature is amazing. I only use the word amazing three times. Did you write it before or after your break? I wrote it during a break. Oh, okay. You know how hard they work us here at Empire. I like to think there are a few that people will immediately think of here, but the uh, surfer Guinness advert by Jonathan Glazer, who recently has been in the news again because of his uh, latest film Under the Skin which stars Scarlett Johansson uh, he's also the guy who made Sexy Beast but that is the advert where the horses become the waves the waves become the horses and they come in and crash black and white is that the one where Tick follows talk follows Tick follows talk is that that one with the, the voiceover going Tick follows talk follows Tick follows talk that one yeah okay by Sean Connery Sean Connery Interestingly, the Nike advert I remember loving when I was younger was the Secret Tournament, which has Eric Cantona swinging a cane, standing on a metal cage, which is inside a oil tanker, and all of the world's biggest footballers are playing like three-a-side, four-a-side football inside this cage. And he goes, he says amazing stuff, but it's kind of under his breath. He says things like, respect. And at the end, when people have lost the match, he goes, the losers go home. Bye. <laughs> it's very strange. But that's actually directed by Terry Gilliam. Mm. But, another fact for you here, it wasn't. He walked in and had all these ideas, and eventually the football supervisors went, you're not what we're really looking for, are you? They kind of ended up directing it themselves. Uh, then there's David Lynch, who did a PlayStation advert involving Bambi, and then you've got Guy Ritchie's point of view footy Nike ad as well. You may or may not remember it. It had pretty much everyone you can think of from 2010's Premier League, uh, Rooney... Tevez, Ronaldo, maybe not Ronaldo, but that is a great advert. It lasts about four minutes, and you see someone vomit twice. You chat up through the eyes of this person, a couple of girls, and you score about three blindingly good goals, and you really do feel like you're part of the action. Um, I'd like to tip a hat. I also had Gilliam on my list, but I'd like to tip the hat to Spike Johns, who I think is great. I love the IKEA lamp advert. Have you seen this? Uh, somebody takes a lamp outside, a little old angle poise lamp leaves it out on the curb next to the bin and uh, because she's bought a new Ikea lamp um, is the implication and the lamp sits there slightly looking up at this new shiny lamp in the window and it rains and it's wet and cold and horrible and you know it gets splashed by passing cars and then at the very end a man with a Swedish accent walks up and goes are you feeling sorry for the lamp? Don't it's just a lamp and it's old and boring (laughs) And that's the ad. <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant. Who directed that one? That was Spike Jones. Spike Jones. Oh, he okay. also did a great one called the Y2K Runner, which was a guy waking up on the 1st of January 2000 and going out for a run past all of this craziness going on and the ideas that the Y2K virus has happened and there's cash machines just dispensing money and planes crashing and helicopters overhead and troops in the street. And he's just jogging through it all. And the only person he acknowledges in any way as he goes is another runner coming in the other direction. Huh. Even as he walks past a giraffe that's escaped from the zoo for some reason. I like that. Ben Whitley directs a lot of adverts and, and he's directed the recent series of Go Compare ads. 
that are on TV now. So with Gio Campari, good compared tenor. And now they've kind of ditched all that horrible stuff that they were doing with him and it's become very meta with the actor playing him with his Welsh accent, trying to pitch things to the Go Compare people, like a, like a doll and whatnot. And it's got that very deadpan, weirdly sense of humour, which I love. And uh, the, the recent Stella Artois Cidre advert, um, where the, with the guy, the head of, the president of uh, Stella Artois, and he has this massive uh, orchard of apples. That advert is directed by uh, Inventors fantastic and apparently I haven't seen it in the cinema but apparently at the beginning of the advert in the cinema it comes up directed by Vim Vendors so there you go has Squarespace done any ad- adverts that we could they haven't directed by who would direct one of their ads Guy Ritchie perfect did and Michael Bay direct that Verizon ad where he says awesome a lot and blows stuff up I wonder if he directed it but he's definitely in it I wonder who directed it that's yeah. very funny Michael Bay's done loads he did that milk one got milk, milk one yeah. all I want you to do is to go to YouTube and type in Michael Bay got milk and I promise you it'll be worth the weirdness of doing that I love the, uh, you mentioned Nike adverts. My favourite of those is the John Woo one he directed with the Brazil World Cup squad a few years ago where they're running through an airport playing football in their brilliant uh, Yoga Benito style. Uh, that's great fun. And interestingly enough, George A. Romero directed a Japan-only commercial for Resident Evil 2, the game. And as a result of that, was hired to write and direct the first Resident Evil movie. Oh, and that was he, brilliant. And then he got kicked off it. Oh. Hooray, boo. Uh, Michael Mann done a couple of uh, done. Michael Mann done a couple of. Uh, <laughs> Michael Mann done a couple of. Done a couple of ads for Mercedes. Yeah. Uh, the Lucky Star one with Benicio del Toro, which is like a mini movie, really, isn't it? It's a couple of minutes long. So it's got every. If you wanted to cram every Michael Mann trope into two minutes, you could do a lot worse than uh, than what he managed there. Uh, grammatically, this is absolutely very <laughs> nowhere. <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't have the elegance of a Michael Mann movie. No, that's, that's it, it doesn't. Does it? it doesn't. But it's apparently he owns the rights to make a movie of that, if you should so desire. Wow. And speaking of uh, action directors making commercials, does anyone remember the BMW series of commercials from a few years ago? It was a, a series of films, short films called The Hire. Um, or the idea was that Clive Owen was a driver, mm. and he was in every single one of them. And some of them are really, really weird. Uh, he, wasn't he racing against Gary Oldman? At one point, Gary was Oldman the was the devil. devil. Yeah, that was yeah. Tony Scott's uh, and other people like uh, Guy Ritchie did one and uh, John Frankenheimer did one and mm. I think John Woo did one and I think I think Juan Carl White, people like that. I, need a, I should probably look that up before I start can, banding names. Can whoever we've mentioned send us money, do you think? Yes, I was right. Ah, yeah, the directors, John Frankenheimer, Ang Lee, Wong Kar Wai, Guy Ritchie, Alejandro Gonzalez, Inritu, uh, John Wu, Joe Carnahan, and Tony Scott. They were the eight directors who did the hire. There you go. There you go. I think just before we wrap this up, a couple of must mentions. Uh, Neil Blomkamp got his big break doing adverts, uh, practicing his CGI uh, with the likes of uh, that Le Rhythme Digital uh, song. I think it's got like bombed a bass, but it's just a Citroen car turning into a Transformers-like robot, doing most the most amazing moves, and then collapsing back into a car again. And finally, Ridley Scott, who has done the most amazing stuff, both for Apple, uh, that bit where that, it's I think in the 1984, but where that hammer thrower lady just lobs a hammer at Big Brother, and it smashes Big Brother, and also the Hobus adverts, which are yeah. about bread. Thanks for your questions. Uh, as ever, you want to get in touch, we are on Twitter. 
where we are at Empire Magazine. You can use the hashtag Empire Podcast or we won't see your question because obviously we're very popular and get a lot of responses in our timeline. Uh, you can email us podcast at empireonline.com or you can Facebook us Empire Magazine. Okay, time for our first guest now. Roland Emmerich is the master of disaster. The man Hollywood turns to when they want landmarks blown up real good. He's trashed a White House and screened twice before blowing it up in Independence Day and drowning it and dropping a battleship on it for good measure in 2012. And he's at it again but on a more intimate scale in White House Down. The second of this year's thrillers about terrorists taking over 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. First one was Olympus Has Fallen. This one, of course, stars Janine Tatum and Jamie Foxx. Uh, Emmerich popped into the pub booth recently and Helen and Phil had a good old natter with him while wearing white vests, of course. Enjoy this interview. It's our Roland gift to you. How did you get involved with this one? Because, I mean, many of your projects you originate, but I think you were... Yes, I was I was actually stuck with one of my projects, you know, called Singularity. You know, this, uh, we were already in production and I, I felt less and less confident that we had the right script. Uh, uh, and so just at that moment, you know, I got this other script uh, from the same company, from Sony. And, you know, and I knew my agent called me and said, it's, uh, it's a big spec script. Uh, it's everybody wanted to have it. And they sent me the script. And uh, when I read the title page, White House Down, I said, no, I will not going to do that. <laughs> not again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then actually, you know, and I went for dinner and came back. It was 12 o'clock. I said, well, let's read at least 10 pages to be polite, you know. And then I couldn't put that uh, script down. And uh, afterwards, I actually texted my my partner Harold and said can you immediately read that script and I kind of send it to him <laughs> and you know and I next day we decided let's do it wow. because it was also I was a little bit you know I wanted to make another movie and when you and when you stuck with your own project which was even like greenlit <laughs> I mean and uh, and then all of a sudden they offers another great script you know you just take it yeah mm. What does that leave singularity? Just out of interest. Well, we're like, a, we're like uh, through this whole time, you know, we discussed uh, singularity and we're just writing, rewriting it right now as we speak. Well, you had the, um, obviously Channing Tatum talking to a squirrel in this one, which is, yeah. is an adorable little moment, but it's one of those things that some actors couldn't sell. You know, yes. some actor, I think he's, he's a very he's charming a guy. very himself. charming guy. I, I, you know, when, before I met him, I hadn't seen 21st Jump Street. So on the plane, actually, I kind <laughs> of got a, a oh. DVD from uh, Sony and watched that movie. And I said, oh, my God. You know, I, I had no idea. <laughs> and then I, when I met him, I first complimented him on 21st Jump Street. And I realized he's much more that person mm-hmm. than any other things he has done before. Mm-hmm. And I kind of thought, oh, my God. And then uh, he also felt that the script had to have a political component, like right. like what I felt. Yeah. So with the squirrels, did you bring quite a lot of personal issues into that particular scene? <laughs> I just squirrel. wonder which one of you, what were your directions <laughs> to Channing Tatum when the squirrel Well, I said, uh, we had like endless material there. <laughs> he was like improvising takes. They were like, uh, and then actually my editor, you know, uh, you know, uh, was like uh, taking the best things. You know, at one point I actually wanted to pull the gun on the squirrel. <laughs> I was going to say, was there a take where it she was, shot? It was hysterical. Oh, I shot the squirrel. Yeah, well, that's then we couldn't use because the, when the, actually in one uh, one uh, version of the cut, it was <laughs> you really a gun on it. 
he said. And then we like, he showed, and I said like, okay, let's do a, I have a feeling we don't get this uh, past uh, <laughs> the censors. So let's try to only show the gun, you know. And then actually the other actor had this funny line, you know, need backup. <laughs> it's all improvised, honest to God. It's all improvised. Because you have a, a reputation for looking after dogs in your movies. Yes, there's no dog. But there's no dog in this one. No temptation. A squirrel, to, a squirrel. Just a squirrel. Had to be there. Yeah, <laughs> Channing talked about how you used to greet him in the morning on set with, uh, with, a, with a loud hailer call. The world's sexiest man is on yeah. set. Did he, did he find his way of getting revenge on you? Not really. <laughs> no, but it was like so funny to me. You know, you're a higher... Uh, actor and then all of a sudden in the middle of the of the shoot all of a sudden there's all this commotion on the set and they say what is what is going on and they show me all the 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 the, the cover of people magazine i said you must be kidding <laughs> <laughs> and from that moment on i mean it was it was actually um you know the you know the the security of the set mm. was like had to be you know pumped up because i mean there, there were like kind of some girls trying to to go for channing they all left the set of whatever movie ryan gosling was working on <laughs> and headed Prob over to probably yeah. <laughs> probably so what about the white house because obviously i mean i'm guessing part of the reason you were a little bit hesitant about this was you've destroyed the white house before yeah and actually twice, twice before I mean. and but it was like in the other movies it was like just wiped off the face yeah. of desserts you know um so um uh, you know exactly that was my you know but this was also in, in already in 2012 when we when Harold and I wrote the script in uh, Thailand uh, we I said at one point so uh, what should we do about the White House uh, and he said like well, because I don't want to destroy it again it's like <laughs> so I feel so and then and actually Harold like convinced me uh, that said like when you don't destroy it uh, people will like say why you didn't destroy the White House this time and then he said, like, you have to just come up with a different way. Yeah. And I said, okay. You know, and then I came up with this idea that, because as a kid, I visited the White House when I was 13 and a half. And before that, we actually, with this American family, we went to this um, this naval yard, which is very close to Washington, where, the, where the, all the old warships are. And we visited the JFK. Oh, and cool. I said, mm, the wave could come from there. And then... <laughs> JFK comes back to the White House, which I thought was like kind of fun in a way because I'm a great fan of John F. Kennedy. So did you get to kind of know it a little bit better this time? Because, you know, you get to explore a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I mean, it. this time we also said to ourselves, you know, um, you know, because it's, uh, the White House is like a character in this film. It starts with a tour. You learn about it a lot. So our idea was to really exactly build it like the White House. And it's really, I mean, in size, and it's really correct. Wow. And there's a couple of things which are not correct. Um, uh, the the kitchen is much smaller, mm -hmm. but like because we had a action scene in it, we made it a little nicer looking and uh, and a little more taste. <laughs> uh, and some other things are not uh, uh, correct, but mostly it's it's correct. Uh, there was also a moment where you see the Eiffel Tower mm -hmm. in the background mm -hmm. in one shot. Was that just to keep the French on their toes? No, no, no. It's, it's, like, it's like the easiest thing to do. <laughs> it was like not even like kind of composited. It was like just a painted Eiffel Tower in the oh, background. It and it just like works when you're like a lot of rain in front of it. <laughs> totally. Sure it it's just, it's, you know, because it's, um, I mean, she could have been also in London and it would have been Big Ben. 
It's just, uh, it was like the easiest uh, to do. We had actually a, a, a line we cut out, you know, which I thought was very funny, but, um, you know, uh, some people were offended in the audience by it. It was, um, you know, um, she said, you know, like kind of your peace uh, treaty is a, is a problem here. You know the French. <laughs> <laughs> and they like kind of didn't like that. <laughs> You've been up for for a while now looking to. I mean, you started off in in, in kind of cerebral sci-fi with Noah's Art Principle, mm -hmm. and I know that Foundation has been a long passion project of yours. Yeah, Foundation is difficult because Foundation, uh, when you uh, as a movie, it's nearly impossible to make because when you go for all what's in it as themes, you end up with Star Wars, yeah. and it looks like a ripoff of Star Wars, and if you go with the books. It's like inconceivable for, you know, it's, it's just reading material. Mm. It takes place over like a thousand years. Exactly, so exactly. It has no continuous characters, yeah. etc. So it's a, I, we, we probably abandon it. I mean, we're trying right now to do it as a big mini series mm. or as a series for, um, you know, because there's now like kind of, but even there you would have to change the story itself and set it in a time when, let's say, the mule has already taken over. Mm. Uh, the 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 galaxy has fallen apart, and then you pretty much make a a TV show with all these characters, and you play all the themes out. Mm. You know, you can, but uh, that's uh, something which we'll see what happens. You couldn't do pre like prelude to Foundation, could you? Because that's the sort of I know, I know that that would have been. But even there, it's like about somebody who will hold die in the next one yeah, it's just it's just uh it's just uh we tried i mean honestly <laughs> i tried so hard because it's one of my most favorite um, uh, favorite books i mean just love it yeah and singularity well singularity is uh on very very good uh, grounds again because uh we actually just overdid its complexity mm -hmm. uh it was just too um we packed too much in it so we lost two or three elements of it, which were subplots. We right. just lost them. And all of a sudden realized, oh my God, this now works, you know. Um, and uh, I definitely want to make this movie. Is that next for you? Because I know there's been a lot of talk recently about Independence it, I think it's probably Independence Day, okay. if I get the right script. Right. They set already a date, but it's still, I haven't gotten the script yet, uh, which uh, I will get pretty soon. Uh, and then I will try for one or two months to get it in absolute good shape. And if that happens, then we announce it. Okay. That we'll like kind of start production. Um, right now, we only set a release date because you have to do this this day. Otherwise, some other film mm. puts it on it and, and, and that's that. And, and I already have um, two or three actors you know, committed. And so we'll see. From the original, because you talked when we spoke for Anonymous about mm. reuniting the cast as much as possible. And you've since well, said Well, you know, I, I, what I want to do, I, 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 I really believe, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, um, we first, like, had the idea, you know, to, uh, to build everything on, on Will Smith. Then Will Smith read it and decided not to do it, which was probably a blessing in disguise because then all my friends and the studio said, Roland, this was always a ensemble cast. Just do it like that. And I said, really? And then I actually sat down myself and rewrote the script Dean and I wrote and just took uh, Will out. And, and, and some sort of the story flowed better because now all of a sudden all the other, the younger characters 
worked and popped out better. And now what we said, you know, um, because I like Jamie Vanderbilt as a writer so much, so I hired uh, Jamie Vanderbilt to work on the characters, you know, so to make them as fun and as cool as uh, what he can do with characters. And then we'll see. And then and then we probably um, sit down together uh, again and, and, and work on it until we're like absolutely sure this is uh, a great script. Yeah. And then the same time I already worked on uh, visualization of certain ideas I had and they turned out pretty cool because, I, because the idea to make uh, a sequel to End of Day came actually out of my fascination of when I did 2012, what you can do these days. You know, yeah. just like with digital uh, CGI. I mean, you can do pretty much everything yeah. now. I mean, so what's the sort of setting? I mean, without giving away any spoilers, because I've always been fascinated by what the world looks like on July 5th, because you've got, you know, every major city completely destroyed. Well, it's like, kind of, it, it, it's pretty much like a, a parallel uh, history. Yeah. Humans rebuilt whatever they have. Right. Bigger, shinier, newer. <laughs> uh, and then they forget. Or they like, even like know that they may could come back. They're still after... 20 years not coming back, they say, maybe they'll never come back. Had they been working on virus protection? <laughs> <laughs> so, probably, yeah. They're like, they're, they don't will fall for that anymore. <laughs> you, you're still very much looking at the cliffhanger, are you, for the, for the two films? Splitting yeah. into two, having a yeah. big cliffhanger, yeah, yeah. and then a couple of years, mm-hmm. and then the second like one part. Year later. Hmm? One, one year later. One year later. Mm-hmm. Be, well, that would be the 20th anniversary, is that part of the... No, it would be. Uh, would be. Uh, I think we will only do the first part okay. because we want to kind of have the audience decide if they want to hear, the, uh, want to see the second part. Otherwise, we'll feel a little bit arrogant, yeah. you know. Okay. And so, so we only do the first part first. But uh, I'm kind of pretty confident when we have the right script, uh, we will pull that off, and then you know. And then at this time, it's around. There is a little bit. Uh, I uh, from the moment you know. Uh, I brought, you know, like kind of uh, Harold Closer in on top of, uh, 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 you know, like a, you know, and, and, and Dean Devlin, you know, embraced him as a, as a, you know, as a, as a producer. And, and, and Harold had this idea. He said, like, what you have guys have to do is you have to create a mythology. Because I think people these days, they want to see a bigger picture of the whole thing. And we created a mythology about these aliens, mm-hmm. which I think is really, really cool. And do you think, I mean, stuff like I mean, Ender's Game obviously has another sort of slightly insectoid hive mind mm-hmm, mm-hmm. kind of a race. Are you, are you worried about things like that coming up or do you think this is different I enough? think it's a different enough. I mean, I, I'm like kind of be, be curious to see it, you know. Um, I'm a big fan of Ender's Games. Uh, uh, but I, I think it's also, I, I think it's a little bit a different uh, situation because it's like kids getting trained for something. In our, you know, in uh, Independence Day is more, they come in such overpowering force that we think we will never make it. One thing before before we get wrapped up, I, I'm really dying to ask you about is is the Asteroids Project mm-hmm. that you were linked with for a while. Can it's not happening at this point. No, it's not happening. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing was uh, it, it's uh, it's uh, Lorenzo de Buonantura, who is a good friend of mine, uh, offered it to me first. He offers everything to me first. <laughs> and he always says, why are you always saying no? <laughs> and in this one, I also, after long, it was a very, very good script. And it had like kind of exactly what I like. Uh, had a very, had a 
two brothers story, which was very interesting for me. Uh, but um, at the end, you know, I had so many other projects which I definitely want to do, and they didn't want it to wait around for me. I said, "Look, guys, uh, I want to do Independence Day. I want to do Singularity." And then, actually, at that time, I didn't even had White House Down, which like threw me back by a year. And then I also want to do a movie uh, about the Stonewall riots. So it's not on the forefront of my interest. So I, I told uh, them, you know, you know, but they had then already seeded into the media that I'm like probably do it. They were like a little bit too fast on that <laughs> one. Um, the Stonewall project I means the plan to sort of fit that in between. That's like yeah. I mean, I mean, I probably have to make with all these other movies so much money that I can <laughs> afford it to finance it myself. <laughs> I have to kind of just pay for it myself. Still, it'll be fascinating for people to see, especially after last week's news. So. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a big, big movie uh, with a very small budget, but. Uh, you know i mean i try it but it was like i i tried only half-hearted because it, it has to be shot in summer you know because it takes place in the streets and trees have to be green and stuff like that and and also it, it has the problem that um it is uh uh takes place at night with a lot of extras in periods yeah. it's a little mm -hmm. bit uh, it's hard to make this really really super cheap also mm -hmm. i think we could make it for 13 14 million but right now when i would only get together on my name i would get like maybe eight nine ten million and that's just not enough and probably i have to just do that and then pay this to rest myself so i don't know well good luck with it anyway <laughs> yeah thanks uh, roland emmerich thank you very Kay. much roland emmerich there and that segues seamlessly into movie news how i don't know but it does movie news give it to me jurassic park Four is no longer called Jurassic Park Four. Oh my God! Jurassic Park Four is called Jurassic World. Dun, 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 dun. It'll be out on June the twelfth, twenty fifteen. We were worried it may not be able to fit itself into the increasingly large layer cake of movies in twenty fifteen. Just to reaffirm, who is in charge of this new Jurassic adventure? Colin Trevorrow, who directed Safety Not Guaranteed. Uh, a relative newcomer to the world of big blockbusters. Writers include Derek Connolly, producer Frank Marshall, and the writers of Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver. Uh, there were worries that they may not be able to get the script into top shape before things got rolling, but it sounds like things are ticking along nicely, and 25 is back on the table. And with a name like Jurassic World, it leads many Jurassic Park fans to wonder... What does this all mean? Are we getting a bigger environment for the dinosaurs to roam in? Or does this just mean, as you suggested the other day, Helen, that Disneyland, Disney World, is it just a bigger Jurassic Park? Will the sequel, as one commenter said, be called Jurassic World The Lost Park? I like that. Uh, yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. Um, it's interesting because one of the rumours about this movie for a while has been that it would revolve around even more in the Westworld style, the Jurassic Park theme park up and running and has been going for a while and it's quite successful and then things go horribly wrong which is obviously an evolution of where it was in Jurassic Park so that that could fit in with that thing I, I think the idea of Jurassic World does that does that mean or you could go does that mean a world that's been somehow overrun by dinosaurs I can't see can't that, see that I can't see that working out really they're easily killable I don't yeah. they're not like 
They are. Let's be honest. It's not like um, Rise of the Planet of the Apes where they become super whip smart and suddenly they present a, a feasible threat to man. Here, you know, even if you have a whole army of velociraptors, you mm. just you just napalm them. I think you're right. They have to keep this limited. They have to keep the the world limited. Mm. Otherwise, you know, it has to be their world and it has to be Jurassic rather than our world. It's seeming more and more to me that even if they go with this theme park up and running idea, that is just at this moment rampant speculation, that there's going to be no room for Sam Neill or Jeff Goldblum or Laura Dern because feasibly, why would they go back? There is always room for Sam Neill. Jeff Goldblum and Laura Dern. I think, yeah, honestly, uh, for me, it's not a Jurassic Park movie if, if at least one of those people, Alan Grant or Ellie Sattler or Ian Malcolm, is not in this movie. It doesn't feel like Jurassic Park to me. However, I am obviously willing to be proven wrong. Absolutely. The leading on from that, you mentioned a movie that's been dismant- dismantled, dis- displaced from 2015. Mm. Pirates of the Caribbean 5 was originally set as a summer temple 2015, due to start shooting early next year. It's now been shoved back a year, with uh, Jerry Bruckheimer telling The Hollywood Reporter that Pirates of the Caribbean 5 Dead Men Tell No Tales has a good story outline, but the script is not done yet. And the writer on this one is Jeff Nathanson, behind such movies as Speed 2 and Rush Hour 2 and 3, and you're, The Terminal. You're being slightly selective there. He's done some other good things. He has done some good things. I'm just picking it random (laughs) from his CD. Yeah, throwing the dart at his uh, resume. Give me some good ones then. Catch me if you can. Anywhere, catch me if you can. Jeff Nathanson is kind of Brett Ratner's go-to guy. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is up for other people to decide. But um, he did write Catch Me If You Can. He's written some. It's interesting that uh, Ted Rossio and Terry Terry Elliott are back in this Mm. one, which is uh, which is interesting. He wrote the Terminal for Spielberg as well, and um, he has done a lot. He came up with, he was one of the guys who contributed to the story of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, so I'm not doing that well in terms of defending him, but uh, <laughs> well, look, I'm sure he's got uh, some good stuff Not up. necessarily saying he's doing a bad job, but it is a it is a handover from Ted Alien and Terry Rossio, who are the guys that have kind of guided this thing through from the from its get-go. It's made an enormous amount of money, Part 4 made just over a billion dollars. Um, and it's a big one for Joe Brookheimer. And in the wake of the sort of catastrophe that was the Lone Ranger, I think it's right that they take their time to get it right. I'm not a very big fan of Pirates of the Caribbean at all on any level. But, you know, it's huge. People love it. People still love the character. So, um, you know, it's probably good that it's getting out of that 2015. I think it's always good to um, spend another month or two months making sure the script is in order before you start spending 150 million dollars on anything um i mean it's the it's the cheapest element to get right even with you know a superstar screenwriter even if they cost a lot of money it's still cheaper than everything else involved in making a movie so spend the money there and get it right this seems like a sensible idea to me and actually also let's face it disney isn't going to be hurting for big name films in 2015 with avengers and a certain star wars film uh, already scheduled so you know they don't need to to cram another one into the mix and potentially take money away from their other contenders can i just say and in terms of jerry Bruckheimer movies he has really focused over the last few years on these massive family friendly tentpoles and that's fine okay they you know they for the most part the pirates movies make a billion dollars and that's a guaranteed knockout the park home run but i miss the old Bruckheimer Already. glossy action movies the ones he used to make with you know tony scott obviously um I miss and Michael Bay. I miss movies like The Rock. I miss movies like Crimson Tide. And I, I would hope that he would uh, maybe use this hiatus uh, to maybe get back to that and rediscover some of that that old-fashioned R-rated action mojo. 
he seems to be in the business of trying to kickstart new franchises. And, and the last times he's tried those with Prince of Persia and The Lone Ranger hasn't really come off. And also Confessions of a Shopaholic, weirdly. He tried to start a sort of female-focused franchise there, which didn't quite take off. It's interesting. But you look back at his, his guy CV in the 80s and 90s, and it was just not classics necessarily, but just really, really good guy movies. And I just wish he'd get back to those. I think it's harder for those to make the kind of money he's not used to. Yeah, and absolutely none of those are going to make a billion dollars. Yeah. Not even a Top Gun sequel, but well, you never know. Hold out hope. What's wrong with making 300 million? Speaking of sequels um, and uh, and action movies, uh, Brad Pitt was talking this week at the Toronto Film Festival, which he's at for 12 Years a Slave, um, about World War Z. Looks like there is at least talk going on about a sequel. It has now made 200 million in the US. Um, it's made just south of 600, uh, well, it's five, 533 worldwide. So it's it's a very respectable Round up to a billion, I think. Round up to a billion. Uh, it's made a m- $3 billion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, uh, and it's actually, you know, it is now, I think, considered a financial success, even if it yeah. hasn't quite made its budget back yet, once you take into account marketing and the amount that the... the those the cinemas themselves take it probably isn't actually in the black yet but it will be ultimately on dvd on tv and everything else um so they are talking about sequels um they have a lot of ideas on the table um and they've got to you know get a, see if they can get a script right and make it work they certainly still have a lot to work with from the book given that pretty much nothing in the book made it to the screen first time um so there's still a lot of kind of potential there but the question is where you go given what happens in the last act of the film which i won't talk about yet but if you've seen it you'll know what I mean so how do you use that to build um, on Max Brooks world and how do you make the film go a little bit more smoothly this time than it did last time but that is now in in at least talks and it is now I guess officially successful enough to warrant at least talks. Give more stuff to Peter Capaldi, bring him back Okay. make it a buddy movie with uh, Jerry Lane Hey. And I would go see that film. I really like World War Z, so I'm 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 quite excited about this. Tentatively, yeah. I'd be very surprised to see Mark Forster come back. I mean, he's uh, his much publicised clashes with uh, Brad Pitt on set, even though I think they were okay by the end. But uh, I'd be very surprised if that happened. Again. I don't see him returning. Um, but obviously, it's been Brad Pitt's baby through eye, and I think I, I genuinely think you know there are bits that you could take from those books that could work brilliantly. We we'd never we didn't see the Battle of Yonkers. We probably won't because I think that happened at an earlier stage than we are now at. But there are great great moments in the book. Um, stuff in the in the catacombs of Paris, for example, I would absolutely kill to see on screen, and you could do that on a relatively small budget. Um, and there's there's so much there to work with. So fingers crossed. One final piece of news, which is not strictly film related, because it's about a TV show. Of course, Breaking Bad is getting the spin-off we've talked about before, but Saul Goodman, played wonderfully by Bob Odenkirk, the slimy mall lawyer who uh, is uh, a slick Rick and doesn't mind coming up with incredible turns of phrase. He's getting his own spin-off in the form of a prequel. We suggested it might be a prequel earlier uh, because we were just thinking, well, how does it work? Do we want to find out more about the world once it's all over? But yes, they're going for prequel. It's been confirmed by Hitfix. And... That is very exciting indeed, because it may mean that we'll see more of the characters uh, in the show as well. So it won't necessarily just be Saul. We'll get Huel and Mike, hopefully. It really is a good thing. Now, I've spoken to Vince Gilligan about this, and I said, you know, how do you feel about doing this? Because, you know, this is a a bit odd. People adore your show. Are you worried you might be diluting the brand? He's like, well, no, because there is After Mash, which is a spin-off show from his favourite show of all time, Mash. And Mash is still a great show. Everyone still loves Mash. And people forget about the show if it doesn't work out. Or you could have a Frasier, 
where Cheers was a huge success, 11 seasons, and then Frasier got 11 seasons. So it's it's a risk you just have to take sometimes. And I know in my heart that Saul is a fantastic character and can hold up his own uh, in his own show. Yeah, I think he's a fantastic character. He's brilliantly played by Bob Odenkirk, as you say. Um, Tongley is going to be interesting because he's obviously a much more overtly comedic character than anyone else on Breaking Bad. Even as things are getting really, really serious now, you can always rely on Saul to come in and deliver a... Uh, a perky one-liner uh, even when things are looking bad for him it's also interesting that it's a prequel so there's a th- few episodes to go and there's been a lot of speculation whenever this show was announced is, does that mean that Saul will walk away from Breaking Bad I'm not so sure now and it's like it's like I'm on tenterhooks to find out what happens there um, yeah, and it's going to be great to see people like Jonathan Banks you know getting he must be sitting by the phone waiting for that call to come, to come through and I want to see what uh, Saul's hair was like a few years ago because he has the best comb over on TV Okay, crazy conspiracy theory here. They might tell us it's a prequel right now and keep telling us that until the main show's finished. Well, see, my conspiracy theory... And it could be a sequel and we don't even know yet. That's true. But my conspiracy theory was that the show was a red herring. What? I didn't even think it was going to be. I thought they were going, oh, yeah, it's going to be a spin-off. It's going to be Better Call Saul. And then, you know, oh, there's... Well, you know, if anything happens to him, then obviously it would be difficult. But a a prequel changes that. Also, you'd have to think that it might end up the last shot of Better Call Saul however many seasons it runs for it's surely got to be Walter White and Jesse walking into his uh, office hasn't it or rather putting a gun to his head as he kneels on the ground by a cliff yeah. in the dark Yeah. so yeah that'll be a nice sign off when this eight season arc I'm sure it'll be that <laughs> successful finally yeah. runs its course can you imagine prequels are largely devoid of tension aren't they Unless they could also do something like the first season or two seasons are prequels and then you skip. Or they make this an out-and-out comedy so it doesn't really need that tension that we're requiring. It's yeah. just a comedy show where you have this total goofball... Uh, I, I I must say, when I visited the set of Breaking Bad, his set, his office, is extraordinary because everything on the wall is just gibberish. It's like man saves dog from bush and man celebrates balloon day and it's just Saul doing his own promotion just sticking his head into everyone's photographs um, <laughs> there's so much to him and I can't wait to find out more about him absolutely okay uh, that's it for the movie news time now for our second guest and it's another big shot A-list director type person Ron Howard has had the sort of career that Clint Howard can only dream of making it big as an actor in Happy Days before becoming an enormously versatile hugely successful and Oscar winning director how versatile I hear you ask well the same guy who directed Splash and Backdraft also directed Frost Nixon and Apollo 13 that versatile and he's at it again with the excellent Rush which documents a real life clash between F1 drivers James Hunt and Nicky Lauda during the 1976 World Championship Ali and I took our portable pod booth to talk to Ron when he came to London recently and yes we talked about Arrested Development enjoy we're delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by Mr. Ron Howard director of Rush welcome sir thank you fun to be here Uh, this is a Sunday morning now it's not a Grand Prix Sunday morning otherwise I'm guessing we wouldn't be talking to you today. You'd be off gallivanting down looking at Formula One cars. Is that, uh, is that the case uh, now? Well, I don't, I don't make it to every Grand Prix race, but suddenly I did become a fan. I went yeah. from knowing just about nothing uh, to, you know, find it really, really riveting. And, um, and of course, Nicky Lauda has always remained a commentator, but now he's um, one of the principals in the Mercedes team. Mm-hmm. And so in keeping up with Nicky Lauda, I also now have a kind of a, um, you know, a, a direct 
insight and interest into what the season's like and how it's unfolding. And it's, it's uh, you know, it's always fun to, to get behind the curtain and, and, <laughs> and see what's going on. So if ever you're stumped for tickets, you just call up Nikki and, and then you're sorted. Grid lane uh, passes, the whole thing. We, we, you know what? I, uh, we, I, we had this fantastic screening uh-huh. of Rush at Nürburgring a while back. Oh, wow. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, Nikki was there. Bernie Eccleston was there. You know, Red Bull team managers ferrari mclaren i mean just it was really you know a mm. great portion of the of the elite and um uh i was uh, didn't think about it all day and suddenly i was staring at all of these people and uh uh you know i felt like i was 12 years old uh you know <laughs> g- giving my report and uh and, and back in element in school uh but uh, the screening went great yeah and I, I even called up my wife cheryl who wasn't there and i said hey do you remember that screening we had in Houston for the mission controllers and the astronauts for, of Apollo 13 at, at NASA? Mm-hmm. And she said, yeah. And I said, I never thought I would experience that kind of thrill again, but I just had the same experience because they all were so supportive of Rush and so respectful and appreciative of its authenticity. And they just, they dug it as a movie. And Lewis Hamilton turned to Nikki Lauda and said, was it really like that? And Nikki went, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, uh, and it, it made me, it made me feel great. So it's a really long answer. <laughs> but uh, uh, the um, you know astronauts like me, uh, uh-huh. firemen like me, uh-huh. uh, and I, I think that now uh, the, that in the Formula One world, I'm you know I'm I'll get a friendly pat, pat on the back. Whether I'll get tickets or not, <laughs> we'll, you know we'll find out next year. I, I really am always fascinated by jobs, you know, um, what people do for a living, and when you and whether I've done mo- I've done a movie, fictionalized movie about about journalism and firefighters, but I tried to get at the authenticity of mm. what did the job entailed. And, you know, and it, it fascinates me. And delving into the world of Formula One and really understanding it was, uh, was uh, surprising in, in a lot of ways, actually, and, 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 um, and, and very interesting. But people are always sort of saying, well, you know, is there some, wrong, is there some stamp on your movies? Is there some pattern? And I, I can't really think of one. I, I like... I like group efforts. I'm always kind of, whether that's a family or whether it's, you know, a team of people facing a crisis. Mm. That's not featured in, particularly in Rush. These are really about two individuals mm. who are, are mavericks, really, in their own way. They're very different. Their personalities are very different, but they are determined to do it their way and bear the brunt of their mistakes and, and, and claim, the, claim the triumphs. But it did give me a chance to delve into a world and, and, and understand sort of, um, you know, how F1 worked then. I, I really love the film, and, and, and as someone who's grown up watching Formula One, it's, it's interesting how different the world of F1 was back then. There was no Bernie Eccleston. You could buy your way into a team. That, that, that yeah. seems to be fascinating to me. It must have been fascinating for you uncovering the machinations of the of the of F1 back then? When I, first, when I first heard about it, before I really began to delve into it, and yes, it ultimately was very interesting, and I really wanted to try to reflect that, um, most of the documentaries that I saw didn't really deal with it too much. Senna had some of the politics, which I, I loved that component of Senna. I liked a lot about the documentary uh, of Senna. The, the rock documentary, Gimme Shelter, was something that I, I, I found really inspiring, visually, stylistically, um, the, the sort of the attitudes, obviously, of the Stones and the other artists, but also the, the, that, the business component swirling around the, the theatricality and the art of, of what it was that they were trying to, trying to, trying to create, uh, the experience they were trying to create. 
Uh, and then there was always, you know, this looming threat in that case that things could go horribly wrong. And in this case that, um, you know, at any moment uh, the car gives out, you make one human error and you're dead. So, um, you know, that was, uh, uh, it was, it was sort of fun to look back. I think, you know, Rush couldn't, could only have really happened in the 70s. Also, there's a six-wheeled car, which would <laughs> well, only they, have happened in the 70s. They are awesome. The Tyrols are just incredible. Did you, when you got the cars on, I presume a lot of them were kind of made for spec mm-hmm. to look like them. But the Tyrol, was that, was that the one? We had two Tyrols, and it's the first time the two Tyrols from that season were actually on the same track at the same time. The, the, the owners, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, they raced them. Um, like a lot of those historic owners do, uh, it, it was that they're sort of the unsung heroes of our movie and 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 making it as as effective and intense as it is, um, and um, you know, and 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 getting it in for the responsible budget that we were able to to uh, achieve, um, and they also brought a level of authenticity because when they. When I found out that they actually raced their cars, they didn't just show them. They didn't just, it wasn't road rally stuff. They raced them, they spin them out, they crash, you know, and they're competing. These are, these are people with enough money to afford that hobby, sure. and, but a real passion. And when I found out they were willing to make their cars available to us mm. really at cost, just the cost of shipping them and coming in. And, and, and the only caveat to, to a man was they would not let our stunt or precision drivers drive the cars. <laughs> they had to drive them. And we were never going to put these cars worth millions into tricky stunt situations, yeah. but we were going to race them yeah. and, and design overtakes and use them for all the grid starts. And, and it wasn't just sitting there in the, in the, in the, pit, in the pits, you know. Uh, and um, they, they brought so, so much kind of uh, honesty, integrity, just balls to the whole thing, you know, because they were there with these cars that were real. And and, and yes, we built replicas, not the mm. Tyrols. Those were all those sure. were the real thing. But um, um, you know, the people building them knew that they were going to have to sit side by side yeah. and even drive alongside the real thing. Wow. And uh, it was it was wild. It's the only time in my life where the 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 stunt drivers' bank accounts far exceeded anyone else on the set. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought these guys are never going to hang in for this, you know, this 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 balding middle aged director running around saying, you know what, we just need one more take. Can you start the car again? Uh, the, you know, they're going to get a, they're going to get something on their on their cell phone from their assistant saying, you know, you really do for a board meeting, <laughs> uh, and just pack up and go home. But they 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 were there. They soldiered through in a remarkable way. We said at the beginning that you might not have been here had this been a Grand Prix Sunday, but also equally you might not have been here, I guess, had the Dark Tower. Mm. happened for you is that what's the latest with that and is well that... yeah dark, dark tower um you know is is something that we're still working on and and, and we've all sort of taken a, a a sort of a agreed vow of of silence <laughs> uh, about the progress the headway what we think our timetable is mm. uh because i don't think i realized First of all, how much media interest there was in the title, and 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 how much excitement there was, and and it's and yet it's a it's a fascinating, I think, powerful possibility, um, and even Stephen King acknowledges it's a tricky adaptation, and and nobody's been sort of heartbroken, but it's also from a from to be honest from a from a um, financing side, mm. it's not a straightforward four-quadrant, sunny, you know, 
superhero story. It's dark. It's horror. It's you know. It's uh. It's it's it, that edge is is what appeals to me, and the complexity of those characters is what appeals to all of us. And I think Stephen King really respects that with Akiva Goldsman and and myself. Um, that uh, you know that that's what we love about it. And that's what we want to try to get to the screen. And so the answer is it got delayed in our minds. It's never gone away. Okay. And we're working on it, and he's very patient with us, and Akiva's just gone off and directed a movie, and I'm continuing to work. But um, the Dark Tower dreams, the fever dreams, <laughs> um, you know, are still, are still, uh, are still with us. And, and, um, but we're not going to give it a timetable because it was, um, you know, it was always a little bit over-reported. In, in terms of you know when we thought a start date was or yeah. whatever, and then it was hugely disappointing when we didn't meet that date and okay, blah blah blah. So so yeah, I don't think it's a project that that really um, benefits from from being um, uh, scrutinized in that way. Okay, but I will ask just one thing. But I'm sure your foul silence will cover it. Um, Stephen King himself appears in The Dark Tower. Have you thought about how you might tackle that? Uh, um, that that uh, yes. Uh, and of, and the um, and 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 I will admit that Stephen said I don't have to be in this, <laughs> <laughs> but that's not to say that he won't be. <laughs> no, true. I, I can really see it. Yeah. Cast Daniel as young Stephen King, Chris Hemsworth as as Roland, and you're off. You're good. You're going. Does it frustrate you when people walk up to you in the street when they see you and ask you to deliver lines from Arrested Development? <laughs> no, not at all. I adore Arrested Development, and and I don't even. I don't mind. Everybody thinks I'm going to be offended if I hear something about Happy Days or in America the Andy Griffith Show, but and there was a there was a period of my life where I f- I feared that you know I just thought I felt a little threatened. I felt like well you know if the if the media only views me that way that that's going to infect the 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 creative community and the collaborators that I hope to work with and and uh, and somehow be reductive. And um, you know, and over the years, that's proven not to be the case. And it's it's such an important part of my life. It, you know, I, I I look back on those experiences, um, and you know, and 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 they they make me smile. And I learned a hell of a lot. And they gave me a lot, the profile, and the leverage to at a very early age, you know, go, launch my directing career. Sure. And and which was my which was my dream. Arrested Development is this lark. I mean, yes, I was involved in this sort of a designing the aesthetic. It was a notion that I had of a kind of a new way to do a family sitcom, and mm-hmm. and and um, but I didn't have those characters. That's all Mitch Hurwitz, and it's it's this fin- remarkable, you know, sort of thing that only occasionally happens, where uh, just a a really brilliant showrunner has something a personal to say about their, you know, about a set of characters, and and the ideal cast comes together mm. and it's magic and and it's also so ex- experimental i loved what mitch did and, and, and with the netflix episodes and i loved that ted sarandos and the netflix people didn't interfere or balk at that for a moment mm. and you know and so they really that, that show has has really brought nothing but joy uh, uh to me and uh, this year of course uh, on the new season uh you were very much a character and very much uh, one I presume is far removed from your real self with illegitimate children and, and whatnot. <laughs> uh, did, did anything much present to you in terms of who you were going to be on the show this season make you balk at any point? No, no. I, 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 uh, in fact, I pushed for the illegitimate kidding. <laughs> uh, uh, the, you know, no, I, I, thought it was, I thought it was hilarious. In fact, I was probably trying to make myself slightly bigger dickwad than he was willing <laughs> to let me be. 
Uh, so I, I was having, you know, I was having a lot of fun with that. And he kept saying, you know, not that far, not that far. <laughs> you know, you're still you. You're, you know, you're a pretty nice guy overall. <laughs> this is a curiosity question as well. But is there any chance you were on set for when Henry Winkler jumped over the dead shop? No, I wasn't. I wasn't. But I, but I, I, I saw those dailies. Well, Henry emailed me and said. My God, Ron, I've just jumped over a shark. <laughs> every once in a while, he'll, he just, he loves the show. He adores it. But every once in a while, he's just ever so slightly aghast. Uh, and, uh, but, I, but he loves it. Uh, but he'll email me. And like, I don't know, in the, in the last episode, he's got a thing where he's just sort of, fuck Ron Howard, I think. And he said, Ron, they made me say it. He says, whatever, when you see the dailies, I just want you to know, that's not an ad lib. <laughs> And we had uh, Mitch Hurwitz in the podcast a few weeks ago, and we're still laughing, as you might, explain, <laughs> as you might imagine. And uh, he was talking about potentially going ahead with the movie next, if Netflix might come in on that. Is any any progress in that? Or you... Well, I mean, th- this was all designed as a as a sort of a setup and a drum roll. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a there's a you know a mystery who shot JR. Yeah, hanging there. There's narrative threads and dangling in the air. Uh, and uh, uh, so you know, um, I think the fans are are doing what they've done on the show all along. You know, they're sort of saying we want more and, uh, and uh, Netflix is listening. And, and I think it's a, it's a you know, it's, it's, still a, it's still a question whether the best way to answer th- those questions and address them are, are going to be more, more episodes or a longer form thing. You know, it's, it's uh, again, it's, it's, a lot of it lives in, in Mitch's imagination and, and, te- and, and Ted Sarandos and Netflix have been very supportive of that and they, they, you know, they won't release any numbers because they never ever do. But they keep, you know, they keep insisting that they, it's been great for them and that they would like more. And um, and the cast loved it. They just loved getting back together. And and when I and and uh, uh, you know, so uh, I, I hope we do more. Uh, Mitch was talking about the uh, the new season or the new film, whatever it's going to be, being a, a whodunit, mm-hmm. uh, resolving the, the the mystery of what happened to Lucille too. Mm-hmm. Can we rule Ron Howard out? You know what? I have, I wouldn't rule anything out. <laughs> Uh, and uh, let me just throw that out as either the first giveaway or red herring. <laughs> and on that bombshell, Ron Howard, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you. Well, take care. And now it's a moment you've all been waiting for. The answer to last week's competition in association with Squarespace. It offered one reader the chance to win Iron Man 3 and Star Trek Into Darkness on Blu-ray. And to stand a chance, all you had to do was answer the ridiculously easy question, which was, what was the name of Ben Kingsley, sorry, Sir Ben Kingsley's character in Iron Man 3. Well, a few of you said the Mandarin. And the winner is... Simon Breeze. Well done, Simon Breeze. We will get that Blu-ray out to you ASAP. This week's competition offers you the chance to win Blu-rays of Fast and Furious 6, Annie Hall, and Manhattan. That's right. Fast and Furious 6, Annie Hall, and Manhattan. And if you can spot the link between those films then you're a better person than I am. So the ridiculously easy question then. What is the full name of Sun Kang's character in the Fast and Furious franchise? If you don't know it, when you hear it, you will groan out loud, believe me. So so not just the first name, because no. he's, he's called that on screen. His, yes. his second name, I think, is not actually spoken, but it is out there in the ether. I believe it is, uh, I believe it is spoken in Tokyo Drift, where he okay. makes his first appearance. So... Check it out if you can. It is online. And uh, do, res- do send in your answers to our email address, which is podcast at empireonline.com with your name, your address, your contact details. And who knows? Maybe you might win the- that incredible triple bill for next week. Okay, movie reviews time now. 
decent week this week, actually. Uh, so should we start with Rush? Okay, so this is the story of the 1970s clash between uh, James Hunt, played by Chris Hemsworth, and Nicky Lauda, played by Daniel Brühl, um, who were two Formula One drivers who basically were vying for the championship. They were the, they were the Nadal and Federer of their day, if you will. One um, in- technically brilliant, um, incredibly focused, um, very dedicated. The other one maybe a little bit more daring, a little bit more out there, um, a little bit more risk-taking. Um, and and the two basically battled, dueled for the, for the Drivers' Championship um, in incredibly dangerous conditions. If you've seen Senna um, already, you'll, you'll know a little bit about the, the dangers of Formula One. Um, the safety's been improved a lot since Senna's time and even before his time since these two. So in those days, it was an extremely dangerous uh, profession. I think there's, a, there's a, a, a line somewhere in the film, one in 25 chance of dying every 20, time. 20%, 20% chance of dying. And it's, it, at the beginning of the film, it says that two drivers a year die. In yeah. F1, which is unheard of now. Which is incredible. Nowadays. So uh, so it is, you know, it's a real kind of duel to the death in some ways, and it, it looks incredibly risky. So it's basically a kind of a two-hander biopic in, in many ways, but focusing on their rivalry, focus on, focusing on the um, tension between them, and, and also the, the, you know, on some level, some mutual respect and, and almost friendship. It's a, it's a very weird relationship, which is, which is brilliantly drawn out by Peter Morgan's script, by Ron Howard himself, and by the two actors. So yeah, I thought this was terrific. Now, I know nothing about about Formula One, except what I've learned in basically Senna. Um, so this is not something that you need to be into racing to enjoy. I think if you are into racing, you'll get more from it, but uh, but you absolutely don't need to be. Um, the races, the, the sort of the main focal races of the of the film are shot each one in a, a slightly different way to give you a real kind of sense of of the different um, challenges that are weighted in each race in different climates and different weather conditions on different tracks and it really does kind of bring home exactly what these guys were facing um, and there is of course you know some some personal life um, story in there as well you, you see their relationship with their respective wives and many other women in James Hunt's case in particular but it's uh, it's it's rather brilliant I thought it was very very good indeed I'd second that definitely do you need to be interested in motor racing to find this enthralling absolutely not I watched it with our Ali Wybrew who is the hugest Formula 1 fan she has seen this film an awful lot already and uh, if anything I think I could sense her frustration when they were doing their pit stops because in the 70s their pit stops were really just chilled you had to phone ahead and book you them phoned in, in then yeah. you'd turn up and they'd be like I can fit you in next Wednesday uh, two weeks off. mate two weeks oh, I don't know oh, about that your red you tire. both tyres no. <laughs> fill it up as well both I'll tires I'll you on screen but yeah, it's very, it's very truthful, I think, to the sport. There are some slight embellishments to the story. I believe that the antagonism between, between Lauder and, um, and uh, Hunt was slightly exaggerated for this. They were perhaps slightly better friends than, than is depicted. If I had one thing that I found about this film that's not really criticism, just a sort of an observation, is that I felt it was a much better film about Nicky Lauder than it was about James Hunt. I thought that Daniel Brühl is absolutely spectacular in that role. He, he, it's rare that you see a film top-lined by you know, a guy who's effectively an introvert, because introverts don't necessarily make great protagonists on screen. Um, a lot of their sort of drama is internalised, but he does a great job of externalising that internal kind of battle. And a lot of the things he does in this film are kind of intrinsically uncinematic. Like, he withdraws from races because it's too dangerous. You know, Cole Trickle didn't do that kind of shit. He, he, he does things that are irrational, irrational 
person who's always weighing up the odds has a mathematical mind and a real sense of perfectionism does. James Hunt is more fly by the seat of your pants and that's perhaps why it's easier for Brawl in this case because the other stuff is more cliched. We've seen Days of Thunder, we've seen that kind of maverick type character before whereas Louder I think is an interesting sort of departure in that sense but that's not to understate how good this performance is. Um, yeah, I also found James Hunt's first team because he, he he drives with these sort of amateur aristocrats who fund him. It's a bit like it's a bit like the working title Formula One team. I thought it's not a working <laughs> title film necessarily, but it's just like they all seem like they come out of central casting at working title. Those guys. Well, Christian Mackay is is actually head of that team, and he is that kind of ultra English man. I thought he was very good though because he's meant to be very working title we should make that clear. Also how the cast of Greenwing were in the, in the film. <laughs> Notice that? Julian Ryan Tutt, Stephen Mike. Okay, two people from Greenwing were in the film <laughs> but it's still interesting. Chris Hemsworth uh, more than holds his own as well. I think if you've consigned him to the superhero guy bin he's not that. He's much better than, than you're, you're giving him credit for. He does the accent very well. I, I really was impressed by him. Uh, but the thing I want to talk about most with this film is the way it was shot. It, it is a, a mixture of uh, digital and film and 70s lenses, and you see inside the uh, actual engines, and then you see inside people's helmets, and then you see from the front of the car, and then it's all just mm. so much access, and there's so much... Uh, clever trickery that's involved with bringing you into the race because actually making a Formula One film feel exciting when after all it is just going round and round and round and round yeah. is a real magic trick and they pull it off with a plum so congratulations I agree it's a weird thing it's like football on the big screen hasn't translated very well and Formula One and racing in general even though it has in, in inherently cinematic principles it's it's about speed it's about things going fast about people risking their lives hasn't really traditionally translated well. I mean, obviously there was Grand Prix years and years ago, and Senna is fantastic, but uh, this movie really captures that sense of speed and that sensation and the, the risk and the daring do. And there's a, a shot uh, near the end, not of a pivotal moment in the film for one of the characters, although that is, there's quite a horrifying moment. I don't want to spoil it, but you know, it's a real-life thing that happened. But there's a moment where a car careers off the track and it, there's a wide shot, a long shot, and it's just absolutely horrific. And you're just thinking, there's no way that anyone could have survived that. And it just really rams home the dangers that, that these guys faced back in the 1976, where they were essentially were driving 200 mile an hour death traps. We are reaching the point now that blockbuster season has picked up its bags and, and walked home to either bathe in champagne or have a cry. We're starting to think about what are our favourite movies of the year. You know, what are the things that have really impressed us so far? And I would say Rush is one of the films that I will definitely want to get again on, on Blu-ray and, and watch again. It is a real joy to watch, and I cannot recommend it enough. Well, Oscar season is definitely kicking in now, and I think this is one of the movies that's kicking it off. And it's interesting, we talked in the podcast a few weeks ago about how disappointing we'd found 2013 so far, and you know how I was even going to struggle to put a top 10 of the year list together at that point. But happily, over the last few weeks alone, I've seen three films that are gay crashed in the top ten, and, and you kind of think, okay, this is actually turning out to be a pretty good year. This Oscar season is shaping up. I mean, if we can believe what we're hearing from Venice and Toronto, mm. uh, this Oscar sh- season is shaping up to be an absolute blinder, frankly. Mm. So, so start saving your pennies and, and start booking tickets for films now. Um, there, there was actually an article in Variety this week suggesting that the Academy should consider making the Best Picture race this year 
uh, a 20 contender shortlist instead of the 10. It already How is. How do they want the show to be? Uh, you know, they're, they're suggesting 20 nominees for Best Picture because... Fast Six, Man of Steel. Absolutely. I mean, some other ones, I guess. Okay, I don't yeah. know. Fast Six twice? I don't know. <laughs> 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 That'd be amazing. The Rock as Luke Hobbs in Fast and Furious Six, and he's up against The Rock as Luke Hobbs. Oh, and GI Joe. And GI Joe. And Pain and Gain. You know, so it's a, it's really and snitch. Wow, this could be an entirely rock year. Anyway, um, but you know, it is it is looking incredible already. Stuff like Gravity, stuff stuff like Captain Phillips, Twelve Years a Slave, Inside Llewyn Davis. There are some incredible films coming up. All is Lost. All is Lost. And, well. and Rush, I guess, is kind of the kicking off Oscar season yeah it's going to be really interesting to see uh, this is getting quite exciting you, you know to see who's going to have the baubles bestowed upon them at the end of the year but already you're looking at the best actor category and it's going to be absolutely insane these are two very 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 good performances from Chris Hemsworth and Daniel Brühl I've got a feeling neither of them will be in the running when when Oscar comes around so it's going to be uh, that's going to be exciting isn't it do you know how Mr Oscar occasionally especially with relative newcomers will stick a leading performance into a supporting yeah, role. I think they might do that with Daniel Rule here. Hundred percent. He's got yeah. no chance of best actor, but he's got a, a be- much better chance of best supporting actor. And I don't mean that as any disrespect to his performance, but just in the way that Oscars vote. Actually, yeah, yeah. especially if you're foreign uh, and you're a co-lead, mm. go for best supporting, and you've got a much better. Yeah, hope. even though this isn't in many ways Nicky Lauda's film, it starts off with Nicky Lauda, it ends with Nicky Lauda. Look uh, at Hayley Steinfeld in uh, in True Grit. I mean, yeah. that's her film from beginning to end. She was up for Best Supporting No, actress. that's a very good point. Uh, and I withdraw my earlier comment. Daniel Brühl may well be in the Best Supporting Actor race, but Best Actor, I don't think so. Best Supporting, interesting. Uh, also got a great Hans Zimmer score that we've talked about previously, mm. which you can listen to on the website. And uh, as you heard from the uh, interview I had with Chris Hemsworth and Daniel Brühl last week, uh, it will make you leave uh, the cinema going, Ashol. <laughs> You're all Ashhorse, which is kind of a Sean Connery meets Austria <laughs> yeah, in- interpretation of everyone's favourite uh, insult. Ashhorse. Ashhorse. Interesting. Four stars for Rush. So that's dev recommendation. Do race out in your nearest Formula One car and go and see it. Do drive safely, of course. And next, White House Down. So. Woo. He's going to tackle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, precisely. I think you just summed up how we felt after watching it. Um. Who's going, to sum, who's going to talk about this one? Ali. I can talk about White House Down because it is quite a easily summable, uppable film. <laughs> it's Die Hard in the White House. Again. Again. <laughs> Round two, ding, ding. It is following on from Olympus Has Fallen. This is Roland Emmerich's take on the whole man takes on bad guys who are trapped inside that particular house on Pennsylvania Avenue in the District of Columbia <laughs> it stars Jamie Foxx as the president who is definitely an Obama rip-off type thing. If you want Tribute. The, tribute. tribute. Thank you very oh, much. <laughs> he is an Obama. It's, <laughs> he's so Obama. He's like what everyone thought Obama was going to be when before Obama got, got into the White House. They were like, yeah, yeah, of course, he's going to save the world. And the whole film revolves around this idea that the leader of the free world, Captain America himself, in the form of Jamie Foxx, is making everyone in the world sign a peace treaty to just have a big hug and calm down that is that's his big idea isn't it the big idea and it's like oh if only somebody else had thought of that this is pretty Amazing. genius anyway so of course the industrial military complex of America isn't that excited about the idea of having no one to sell arms to so that is the plot essentially some workmen come into the cinema the White House cinema that it's getting fixed up it needs to be more widescreen so that you can see ironically the White House blow up on a bigger screen and they come in led by Jason Clark. is that right mm-hmm 
and it's up to Chan Chan, Channing Tatum, to come in and do his thing. He is a wannabe Secret Service agent. He wants to protect the president, but unfortunately, due to having a difficult uh, time in the education department and also maybe his life going not the way he wanted it to, he had a child when he was young, then he divorced from his wife, he is trapped inside the White House with these bad guys and a bunch of tourists who he was on this tour with and his own daughter, who is just a little tot. I don't actually know her name off the top of my head, but I thought she was very sweet and quite funny at times. She's an important part of the plot. But anyway, what do we think of the film? I personally thought, and I've said this a lot recently, it's too long, but move that to one side for a moment, because this is an incredibly fun ride, and if you switch your brain to the right level, you will smile, and you will see Jamie Foxx as the president leaning out of the bloody beast, a.k.a. the president's version of Air Force One, Grand Force One, the super limo uh, that's essentially made of ultra-unbreakable glass. He's leaning out of that window with a rocket launcher, and someone says the line, oh my God, it's President Sawyer, and he's got a rocket launcher. (laughs) This is the bigger, dumber, more expensive, more explodey, stupider funnier version of Olympus Has Fallen which I liked I, I, I'm i sensing mm. I may be alone in that around this table but I liked it and it had a very very serious kind of attitude uh, yeah I had an absolute blast with this Roland Emmerich really knows how to put this stuff together and uh, it, it's very inventive in the way that it never leaves White House ground there's a car chase in the grounds of the White House it doesn't leave uh, crash through the gates and, and explode out on the streets of Washington and it, it you know, even though it plays all the beats of Die Hard and Olympus Has Fallen pretty much beat for beat it is still enormous fun I would say maybe slightly disappointed by the villains again I thought the villains in Olympus Has Fallen you know the fact is if you're going up against Die Hard you want to have a bad guy who's going to at least try to emulate Hans Gruber in terms of coolness I think the bad guys in Olympus Has Fallen didn't do that and I think the bad guys here don't do that either which is disappointing because they're played by James Woods and, and Jason Clark, and yet they don't really get those big grandstanding moments. But it is a lot of fun. You and I, Chris, saw this on a Friday night uh, and basically spent the entire uh, film, as we are wont to do in stupid, dumb action movies, high-fiving each other. <laughs> um, I will say, <laughs> A, that's not euphemism, and B, no. very few people were in the, uh, in yes, the screen room. We, so we, weren't, weren't, we, weren't dis- you know, we weren't disturbing anyone no. else. It's important to note that. Kids, play safe. Um, but but it is just immense fun and I, I also like a little bit of a note for Channing Tatum I went for some reason Step Up was on TV the other weekend and I watched it again and he just came ready packaged with this very easygoing charm that I think he's kind of he's one of the few actors at the moment one of the few kind of stars at the moment who I think has a kind of coherent screen personality which I don't mean that he, he never tries anything new because I think he does push himself sometimes but he does he is a sort of a, a personality that you can recognise in different roles in different films and it, and it is on display here even when he's talking to a squirrel at the beginning of the movie he somehow sells it I don't quite know how uh, but it does it, it, it works it makes him look you know funny but not you know crazy there's lots of Roland Emmerich being in on his own jokes which he always is you know there's a reference to Independence Day that the tour guide makes yeah that was a little on the nose the, the a tour, little on the uh, nose just a bit but you know it's kind of funny because it's Roland Emmerich doing that thing there's a bit at the beginning where the daughter Channing Tatum's daughter does her flag um, twirling uh, routine uh, there's a term for that I can't remember what it is and you're thinking could that come in helpful later on in the movie and sure enough in the most ridiculous way possible it does uh, lots of that kind of stuff Emmerich is so in on all of these jokes he's kind of like post post meta somehow um, you know there's a there's a right wing uh, journalist character on the ground who comes out pretty badly on the whole 
all that stuff. I guess my reservations were I didn't particularly I didn't think Tatum and and uh, Jamie Foxx had brilliant chemistry together on screen. And uh, I also felt together, that, funny enough. It's just one of those weird things. You think it's a buddy movie, and uh, yeah, yeah, kind of needed to be a bit more together and a bit more buddy like. I think for me, but also you know having seen Olympus Has Fallen, this is pretty much exactly the same movie. And if you've seen the one, although this is better, you do feel like you've kind of you just seen it again. Uh, a little bit so and also I think Olympus Has Fallen has the standout sequence of both films which is the the opening attack on the White House yeah that is fantastic um, so those are my reservations but you know we gave it three stars so something for everyone in background Breaking Bad character watch you have one of the swastika I was about to say swastika stickered, but it's a tattoo, of course. Characters from the latest season of Breaking Bad is one of the chief goons in White House Down. I don't know the name off, his, off the top of my head, but if you are watching Breaking Bad, you'll enjoy seeing him. I would also say that Maggie Gyllenhaal is incredibly underserved in a role which is almost entirely without enjoyment. It's just her sticking plot points together with a bit of glue, and there's some sticky tape, and then someone else is sworn in, and no, they pull up a screen and someone talks on the phone I just think you deserve better so much better but you know bad luck I think her character's first name is actually Exposition isn't it Exposition <laughs> she is Secret Service Agent Exposition Exposition uh, three stars for that one otherwise I think it's one of the most fun blockbusters of the summer uh, it's, it, and it kind of flopped in the States it's the kind I of guess. film we should be encouraging because we're talking about Jerry Bruckheimer movies not being made anymore this yeah. is the kind of film we need to be going to see because this is the stuff that certainly for me I grew up watching and thinking was incredibly cool so it's a strange world where now the things that make money are cartoons and Pixar and Pirates of the Caribbean and robot movies and Marvel and I would like to live in a world where you could still get the occasional 100 million, 80 million budget big, boisterous, goofy action film being made and instead we're getting the likes of The Tomb which I don't think was made for well as was The Tomb now Escape Plan uh, for much much less The Expendables isn't yeah. even reaching this budget I agree with you but dare I say it, I don't feel these films are as good as the films that we grew up with no they're not they're so not. they're abs- absolutely not okay so moving on then uh, to the other big release of this week which is Insidious Chapter 2 uh, James Wan started filming on Wednesday on Fast and Furious 7, which is impressive given that he's already directed two films this year. Uh, the first, of course, was the excellent traditional horror, very spooky by things that go bump in the night, The Conjuring, which came out in July. And today, what with it being Friday the 13th and all, sees the release of the even more bonkers sequel to the slightly bonkers Insidious, which sees a normal family haunted by demons from another dimension. So... Uh, so the originals had a family, mother, father, sons... Um happily living together the Lamberts and uh, their son Dalton was abducted in the end by demons from another dimension and taken to a place called The Further Mm -hmm. and his father played by Patrick Wilson Josh Josh, had to go and get him back and he did successfully so the first one had a happy ending happy days dad and son back from The Further because he has latent psychic abilities the son has psychic abilities the father has psychic abilities uh, which have been suppressed for years and he finally discovers them so he goes into The Further and rescues his son but but Dun, dun, dun. Hakuna Matata Stop it That's horrifying The paranormal events Have continued They've started up again Everyone's very worried And it, there's strange behaviour But not this time From Dalton No Dalton's alright He's behaving This time mm. You won't see this coming No It's Josh It's Josh. the father Is yeah. now acting A bit Crazy. Well, just to completely set the scene for this one, uh, and just to really, if you honestly if you haven't seen Insidious, please cover your ears because this is going to ruin the end of Insidious. Insidious ends with 
Josh, who's now possessed by an evil spirit, killing Lin Shay's character. Lin Shay is a psychic, uh, a medium in the poltergeist fashion because essentially the, the Insidious is a remake, or not, or not a remake, but it's a homage to poltergeist and poltergeist to the other side at the same time, which is Crazy. pretty pretty, uh, pretty freaky. Uh, and we'll get that in a second. I think it's one of the, one of the reasons why people were a little bit down on it. Uh, but, uh, so he, it, it ends with her death. She's the helpful medium who's been you know helping the family out all the way through. He kills her, and that's where the movie ends with him putting his, his hand on Roseburn's uh, shoulder after she discovers Elise's uh, corpse. Okay? So, in the grand tradition of horror movies, they continue with... They continue the story of the original movie straight after the original movie ends. It happens in Hellraiser and Hostel and even Evil Dead to, to an extent. This movie takes up right where the first movie left off. Uh, what's interesting is a lot of people had a problem with the first movie in terms of the first hour or so of Insidious is a really well-crafted, spooky things go bump in the night horror film. A bit yeah. like The Conjuring, very, very traditional. And then once the psychic powers are, are revealed and the idea of the further is revealed and you go into the further and it just becomes a completely mental movie. Now, I like that about Insidious. I like the fact that it was two movies for the price of one, almost essentially. And this movie builds in that craziness because it has now established the further, it has established psychic powers, it has established the idea that Josh is possessed by something and it just ratchets up that sort of nonsense. You can imagine Lee Wanell, who is the writer who's been working with James Wan for years. Obviously, they did the first Saw movie together and the first Insidious. Uh, you can almost imagine Lee Wanell cackling with glee as he writes some of the plot twists in this movie. It, it, it turns back on itself in a very, very clever fashion that takes into consideration some of the stuff that happened in the first movie. There are things, there are little t- there's little time frame shifts that work very, very nicely in this film as well. And again, it's just a fantastic haunted house movie ride or some really really well calibrated and crafted jump scares I think James Wan is one of the best of the new breed of horror directors at, at that sort of sense of dread that something's about to jump out at you at any any second now and it also has this metaphysical side as well which is really really fun and I just I had an absolute blast with this movie and it's been getting some mixed reviews in the States I gave it four stars for the magazine I had an absolute blast with it uh, and I think uh, it gets crazy towards the end mm. and the performances are very very good uh, um, uh, Patrick Wilson is excellent as the dad who is trying not to go full Jack Torrance uh, and then you'll find out why later on there's some really really tense set pieces as there's there's another medium who comes in uh, uh, halfway through the film and there's a really really tense confrontation between the Josh character and him which is which is fantastic and it's just it's got really really fun set pieces and there's Barbara Hershey as well as his yeah. mum because they sort of take refuge with her she's yeah, always they, good they, it's always good to see her on screen they, they go to her house uh, they and uh, and things immediately start happening again so it is very much like Poltergeist 2 yeah. uh, uh, aesthetic but then they start going back at the further, and and it it's it becomes a lot of fun. Wan and Winnell, though, like they came in for a, a web chat a couple of years ago, and they were. I mean, I was expecting, you know, because they made Saw, I was expecting two pretty serious, kind of possibly dour and or creepy guys, and they they were some of the most hilarious web chat guests we've ever had. Oh, they're fantastic. They're really really funny guys. I wish they were coming over here to to promote this movie actually, because obviously James Wan is slightly busy at the moment. A little bit. Uh, because they're, they're they're great to talk to and it'd be great to talk to them about the, the ins and outs of this movie because like I say I can imagine Lee Wanell cackling as he comes up with some of the plot twists in, in, in this one and it, not to give too much away but it also there's a franchise here there's a definite franchise and I think we can expect an Insidious chapter 3 at some point in the near future the rate these guys crank them out probably 
March. Same day as Fast 7 drops, <laughs> I imagine. But yeah, four stars for Insidious Chapter 2. Uh, go see it and then call me a loon afterwards, why don't you? Also out this week is a baseball drama 42, which is decent stuff from uh, writer-director Brian Helgeland, but a bit of a change of pace for him. Uh, Leonard's uh, Lake Bell's In a World, about the daughter of a voiceover artist. Uh, Lake Bell wrote, directed, starred in it, they made the tea and all sorts. We gave that four stars and we gave 42 three stars. And last but not least is a film that will, unless things change drastically, replace the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen as the answer to the pub quiz question, what is Sean Connery's final film? And the new answer is Sir Billy, which is billed as, or Sir, Sir Billed, as uh, Scotland's first animated film in which Sir Jean lends his love of sibling sounds to a Scottish vet who roars around saving the world in an Aston Martin. Sounds that familiar. That sounds a little yeah, familiar. a little familiar. Unfortunately, the film itself is pretty terrible, which is a shame. Maybe he should have done Skyfall instead. Maybe he should have done that, that cameo. Oh, if only. They were asking him. But, uh, but there you go. Uh, and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast in association with Squarespace. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by the Scarecrow himself, Mr. Killian Murphy, who's here to talk about his new BBC show, Peaky Blinders. And also Neville Longbottom will be here. That's right. Ooh, the hot true Neville. Hot Neville, the true hero of the Harry Potter movies. Matthew Lewis will be coming to talk about British indie The Rise with his co-star Luke Treadaway. So do not miss that. Until then, it is goodbye from Helen. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Ali. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to both Hakuna and Matata. See you next week. Hello. Yes, it's Ali again, uh, the editor, Ali. This is normally the point in the podcast where I tell you all about Squarespace, and it is that point. That, that hasn't actually changed, but uh, it's a new version, just so you are kept on your toes. And I also just want to explain the answer to the quiz question last week. Yes, we gave you the answer earlier on in the podcast. Obviously, there's more to the answer from last week's quiz question, but I decided to take it out you know, the answer answer, just in case you haven't seen Iron Man 3. It's a great film, and you know, maybe you haven't seen it yet. So that's why we didn't give you the answer answer. But Squarespace, yes, this week you can win Woody Allen's two masterpieces, Manhattan and Annie Hall, as well as Fast and Furious 7, nothing to do with Woody Allen, that one, on Blu-ray. And all you have to do is answer the question that we mentioned previously, you also, if you win, get a year's worth of Squarespace access. What is Squarespace? It is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy for you to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, online store, whatever you like, really. I've started it myself. I won't give you my URL just yet because it's not quite ready, but I am genuinely very impressed by it. But anyway, for your free trial and for 20% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code Empire 9, more details, it's user-friendly, does all the tricky stuff for you, SEO, hosting, it's all mobile, tablet, portable device-friendly, pre-prepared designs, loads of style options. It is genuinely very easy and well worth at least a look. Sign up for a year, you get that free domain name that we mentioned before, and there is an on-hand support team working 24-7 in case you need some help. Anyway, $8 a month, free trial. 20% off your first purchase with Empire 9 is your offer code. Thank you for sticking around to listen to all of this stuff. It is greatly appreciated. And uh, tune in next Friday for another slice of Empire podcast fun. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week. Bye. Bye.